You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Emily Guy-Burkin. I'm Joe Salcihai, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. When I first learned about the concept of personal finance and financial independence, I read almost every book I could get my hands on. And my mind was blown the first time. Yet book after book, I came to a pretty staggering conclusion. There's really very little new under the sun when it comes to personal finance. The trick for me and my advice to all new learners is pick up two or three good books, and then you're done. The obvious question is, which books? Are some better than others? And more importantly, why? Joe Salcihai is the creator and co-host of the Stacking Benjamins podcast, as well as an executive producer here on Earn and Invest. And Emily Guy Birkin is a former educator, lifelong money nerd, and a Plutus award-winning freelance writer who specializes in the scientific research behind irrational money behaviors. They both have teamed up to write the definitive guide to personal finance, Stacked, your super serious guide to modern money management, Joe and Emily, welcome to the show. Emily, I want to start with you. There have been some great general personal finance books out there written recently. Why write another one? And let me let me turn that question around. Put differently, what's different about Stacked? Well, most of the money books out there are going to be pretty straightforward. They're going to tell you how to budget. They're going to explain the basics of investing. And that is all really great information. But there are a lot of people out there who the idea of picking up a money book gives them hives. You know, it's just like, oh my goodness, I can't possibly do this. I am so far behind that I'm not even going to understand this book. So Joe came to me with an idea of making a playful book, one that uses humor and where you are reading and enjoying what you're reading and also learning about money. So rather than it being this sense of, I've got to go learn about money, it's more like, oh, I'm going to laugh my way through this book. And by the end, I'm going to feel a lot more confident and, uh, and connected with my money. Joe, can it backfire? I mean, is there something about personal finance that needs a level of seriousness? Do we detract from it if we make it funny? No, absolutely. I think I think it can backfire. And I think that being goofy or being over the top often makes people think that this isn't a serious topic. The the problem, Doc, and by the way, thanks for having us on. I really appreciate it. We the 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 thing that frustrates me is that I saw the statistic a few months ago that 65% of people have cried about their money. 65% of people have cried about it. And by the way, we think that that's often low income, right? And certainly there is a difference between having very little money. And I was there where I was crying about my money and didn't know where to turn. But it it is kind of income agnostic because the study that I read even showed that people making over $250,000, 60% of those people have cried about their money. So when we feel so uptight and we feel so unsure of ourselves, and we're not really sure where to turn, I think the first thing we have to do is know that it's going to be okay. 
and we have to know that that we will get through this. So I really wanted to I really wanted to make sure that number one, this is a serious book, and we definitely make some very serious points. But if we can approach them in a way that helps you get into it, and and have the difficult conversations that we often don't want to have. Or, or don't even know the right questions to ask, right? Like back back then when I was crying about money, I didn't know what to ask. So if we can get into that in a fun way so that we're not crying about it, I think that's a good place to start. Emily, do you agree with Joe? Can you think back to a moment where you were crying about money, regardless of where you were on the income scale? Oh, yes, definitely. My money stress is generally not like other people's money stress. I've always been a money nerd. I've always tracked my expenses, even when I was working retail right out of college and making very little money. I've always been very good at keeping track of my money and keeping um, on pace with it. But the thing is, money is emotional. It's psychological. We put moral meanings to it. And so when I have cried about money, it has been when I have felt like I don't deserve money that I've been getting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in particular, when my father passed away and I was the beneficiary of his life insurance, um, I experienced incredible distress and stress about that money because I felt like anything I did with it would be some sort of betrayal of my, my father that, uh, you know, accepting this money, using it for something that I wanted would in some way indicate that I was glad to have the money and not have my father. So when Joe says that, that it's income agnostic crying over money, I, I absolutely believe that because even in that study, I think that the other 35% of people have also cried about money just not in the way that we're thinking of. We think of crying about money because I'm not sure how I'm going to pay rent and and that that causes me stress and I'm crying. And that is certainly a, a stressor that you see over and over and over again. But on the other hand, you see people who are conflicted about money in other ways, people who are, are experiencing other types of money stress that is not as socially acceptable, I'll even say, because that was one of the things that was also very difficult about the situation with my, my father's money. And I've, I've spoken to people who have lost spouses who feel the same way because they you know have become instant millionaires because of life insurance. And they can't talk to anyone about the fact that they are overwhelmed with this, this money stress that a lot of people would say like, oh, I'd love to have that stress. I, I know someone who lost a husband and who had a therapist actually say that to her. So that's something that I think that we need to be looking at and and be accepting of and and be open to the sense that money is going to cause stress and, and no matter where you are on, on the money spectrum. And not knowing where to turn is a problem anywhere on the money spectrum. And wanting to have the ability to think and talk openly about money. And again, getting back to like the the point of of what we did with stacked, being able to joke whether that is just kind of making jokes that, you know, like we, we both love dad jokes, you know, making, making the, 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 the silly puns and things like that, but then also having the ability to make some gallows humor. Some of the best ways of dealing with really terrible stress is, is making fun of it. And so the, the gallows humor that my sister and I shared after my father passed away, you know, for instance, my, my dad refused to wear a seatbelt and uh, he died of a, of a, a brain tumor. And so his friends and, and we, the, in the days after he died, were like, well, he was right about the seatbelt. So, <laughs> <laughs> so bad. <laughs> it, it was, and it was, it was one of those where like we all laughed, and someone from the outside would have been like, "That's horrible." But that having that release, that release valve, that we also know my dad would have laughed at as well, is something that's so important. And because money is is such a taboo subject in in our society, we don't create those release valves. We don't give people that chance to to make those those dark jokes or any jokes at all. And so giving people that opportunity is a way to kind of relieve stress, even if that doesn't solve the problem. It does alleviate some stress and gives you the the mental breathing room that you need to kind of make a better decision. So it sounds like most people, regardless of income, have money stress in their lives. We may have different levels of income or different jobs, but when it comes to talking about personal finance, 
we often need a common place to start. Joe, let me quote the beginning of your book here. You said, virtually every financial book starts with the same tired move, asking you to write out your goals. While there's nothing wrong with the strategy for financial planning, seeing it over and over starts to feel like hearing the same old pickup lines. Hey, baby, are those some well thought out financial goals in your pocket? Or are you just happy to see me? (laughs) Is it hot in here? Or is it just your 30 year financial plan? And last, but of course, my favorite, I like your money goals. They look great in a pile in my bedroom floor. What's, What's wrong with starting at the end? What's wrong with this whole idea that all these personal finance books tell you, hey, let's start with your goals? Why is that not necessarily the right way to begin? It actually isn't that that's the wrong place to start. It's that every single book presents that truism, begin with your goals, but doesn't do it in any way that makes us actually do it. You know, Ramit Sadie starts out his book, I'll Teach You to Be Rich, with some actionable stuff that you can do. And I think that's part of the magic of that book. He's like, listen, Everybody gives you this philosophical crap at the beginning and, and you're going to do nothing with it, even though you know you should, right? You, you nod your head, you go, yeah, that's great. So Emily and I knew that we had to start, we had to start at the responsible place, which is exactly with begin with the end in mind, but we actually show you how to do it in a way that makes sense and that will make all the rest of your goal setting easier. And that is timeline out your goals. Take these goals. So instead of going, yeah, someday I want to retire. Well, what what day is that? What's it going to look like afterwards? And I'll give you an example of where I think people mess it up. People use this 25 times number. The 25 times number is BS. I know people that want to live this extravagant lifestyle once they stop working. And I know other people that don't want to spend any money. So taking what you're doing now and 25 Xing it, while it's nice and it's a rule of thumb, our point in chapter one is it's so fun and it's so easy to do it the right way by actually timelining your goals backward. Why don't want to use a rule of thumb at all? Like, why do I start there? And sometimes I get pushback about that. And I push back on the pushback that really... It's way more fun. It, it's way more helpful if you actually do a little bit more lifting and go, you know what? I want this on this date. I want this on this date. And I want this on this other date. And what's funny is we'll often see for people, especially that have children. When I was a financial planner, I would see people that would say, yeah, my kid's going to go to college. I want to retire X day. And then I would see when I timeline it out right in front of them, by the way, I go to a whiteboard, I time it, timeline it out and I'd show these little stick people and this stick people on the left where you are today, timeline across to the right, retirement and the kids college happening at the same damn time. And guess what? Because it's 16 years from now, they never knew it. Like they, they totally never knew that these things were going to fall together. So then we'd have to talk about, well, if you don't have enough money for both, which one goes? Like, do you retire later? Do you retire on less money for a while and then and then help junior get through college? Does junior do more of the heavy lifting toward college? If that's a goal, does junior, you know, a lot of families are even talking about what's what's the college ROI now? You've done that on this show many times. So does college even have an ROI? Do we need to talk about that? But by timelining your goals, you get to these interesting granular conversations that a 25X BS number doesn't do. It doesn't give you any of that that cool stuff that we're all searching for. One thing that I notice is that all of us have a really hard time keeping timelines in our heads. So for instance, you will be like, you'll have in your head, okay, on Tuesday, I'm having lunch with my sister. And then also in your head, like I've got a dentist appointment on August 17th. And then all of a sudden, like, it's not until you're having lunch with your sister, you realize today is August 17th and I have a dentist appointment. (laughs) And so, and that, that happens to us all the time. Every single one of us has that experience. And that's kind of where I feel like that timelining your goals is really helpful because do that on a Tuesday, you know, that, that happens to all of us. And you end up, you know, like getting to, to the dentist with spinach in your teeth because you had to run from lunch. (laughs) 
But if you do that on the like larger, like 16 years from now scale, 25 years from now scale, you are missing like major swaths of time just because you're thinking like, yeah, my kid's 15 and three years is going to be going to college. And you're just not even thinking about the fact that like, yeah, and in five years, I want to be retired and not recognizing that overlaps. And so having this opportunity to really look through this and, and put it on a timeline so you're not putting it in separate baskets in your mind um, where you just don't think about how they intersect with each other. It leads you to this great equation of I'm going to need X amount of money times Y return to get this goal. And it gives me these three factors that I can play with. I can either save more money if I decide, you know what, this rate of return, I don't, I don't think I can reach that, or I don't think my risk tolerance can reach that. I can then decide to save more money. And yet, what, what do most people do? When, when I would go to companies and I'd ask them about how much money they saved in their 401k, I'd say, how'd you come up with that? Well, that's what I could afford. I would ask this brilliant question, brilliant, by the way, question, and I'm, I'm being very <laughs> tongue in cheek. What will that give you? Where do you end by putting in that money? And they go, I don't know. And I'd say, why did you choose this, this range of investments? I chose these investments because they're the ones that look comfortable to me, right? So instead, if I timeline the goals back, I know what my budget needs to be. I know what my risk tolerance needs to be. Then I can have conversations about how I get it. But it really comes down to, and I want to go back to just for a second, this idea of people that use shortcuts, the 4% rule, the 25X number. One of my favorite books of all time on organization is by a guy named David Allen. It's called Getting Things Done. And this thing has gone through so many reprints because this is, if you want to get organized, read Getting Things Done. And people, he's got this whole community of, they call themselves GTDers, right? David Allen says, when you pick up a piece of paper one time, decide what to do with it. Most of us don't do that. We pick up the piece of paper, like, I don't know what to do with it. So I'm going to sit it back down right here. And he said, he made this point. He said, if you don't have the time to do it right, now, and you're going to sit the piece of paper back down again, when are you going to have the time to do it right and do it once and do it right and get done with it instead of, you know, a lot of us have these stacks talking about stack. We have these stacks of paper sitting next to us that we're going to get to pick it up once, do it right. And the stack will go away. I think it's the same thing, doc, with rules of thumb, with a rule of thumb, with the 25 X rule, or the, or the 4% rule, I'm going to have to pick it up again. By timelining my goals, I'm going to pick it up again to tweak it. But now I know I've got so much more information because I did it right. And then I'm not going to have to go back and mess, unmess up my mistakes. Unmess up. That's a great phrase. <laughs> we, we always you get the so best stuff yourself. from you, Joe, on this <laughs> that is, that is it. I will coin a new phrase whether I want to or not. Emily, one thing I'm thinking, and one of the things I love about timelining, which comes out later on in the book, is I can't tell you how many times I've been in a personal finance forum and someone says, I just sold my house and I have $100,000 extra. How should I invest the money? And I love this idea that timelining can help you decide how aggressively to invest because ultimately what always comes out in those forums is, well, what do you need the money for? Mm -hmm. Right. And they say, well, I want to buy a car next year, but then my kid's going to college in five years. And then I want to have enough to retire when I'm 50. I love the fact that you can actually use timelining to answer that question. How do I invest my money? Yeah, so often a lot of financial stuff feels amorphous because it's just like, what's the best thing to do with this $100,000? Or even what's the best thing to do with this unexpected $5,000? And it feels amorphous because we don't get that granular and because we have so many of these rules of thumb. Now, rules of thumb can be helpful as a place to start. You know, when I was trying to talk to my husband about retirement and things like that, just kind of giving him a place to start, like, okay, here's back of the envelope numbers using rules of thumb. But the thing is, if you really want to know what's going to be best for you, you need to get specific. And so having, you know, goals timelined, like Joe advocates in the book and, and explains how to do in the book, that allows you to get into that kind of specificity so that you are not just like, well, I think it'll generally be okay if I do this. You can get into like, oh, okay, so for the car that I want to buy next year, this is an option. And you know, if I put this much away and anticipate this kind of return, I will have enough for a down payment or enough to pay cash. And then for my child going to college, if I do this in that 529 or if I choose 
do something else in case they don't go to college. And so then you're asking the right questions instead of asking like, what should I do? Which is one of those, no one can answer that for you. You're asking like, okay, what's the best option to make sure that I have the $30,000 I need for a new car next year? What's the best option to make sure that I have money set aside for my child who may or may not go to college? Is 529 the best option or might it make more sense to put it into a taxable account or something like that? And one goal is not sabotaging the other. Exactly. Once you start doing that, because if you have, what should I do with $100,000 that I unexpectedly got? You get a lot of people who are like, index funds. And so it's like, one of my favorite lines, if I if, if it's okay that I, I I curse, my favorite lines from the Big Lebowski is, "You're not wrong. You're just an asshole." <laughs> so, <laughs> in that, that doesn't that's not all-purpose panacea for any money question. And it really has to get down into the specifics of what it is you want, where you want to go, when you want to go, where you want to go, and what your tolerances are, and and uh, what your what your general ability and financial stability is. I thought it was interesting that when we were explaining like how to then invest money and how to look at timeframes, like Emily had this whole like farming analogy she wanted to do. And I was like, Uh. back off, back (laughs) off that Emily. And Emily just insisted that we use farming all the way through the book. It was Joe's farming analogy. Please (laughs) let's correct the record. (laughs) (laughs) But we, we, we do doc use a farming analogy. But it makes sense to me as a guy that grew up in farm country that, you know, if you're going to plant corn, you plant during a growing season, right? You have a growing season for corn. So if you have a 20-year time frame, I I know this is going to sound brilliant, but you look at investments historically that have that growing season, you figure out which ones have done well with that growing season, and you buy that. And instead of, and I think what people freak out about when they first start out is they look at all the different things they could grow. But if they start off with, well, when do you want the food, right? When do I, when do I need this? You grow it. But, but it's also important. You not only put it in the ground at the right time, you let it grow. And so we make this point. How often do you have people go, hey, I'm partway through the summer. My corn's only halfway high, but I think I'm going to pull it out and replant watermelon. Right. You're like, what the hell is that about? Like, why, why am I doing You got to give the corn, the growing season. Like don't it's, it's halfway done. Doesn't matter what's going on in the market today or during the summer months or whatever. However, I'm going to finish this analogy. (laughs) What matters is, is that you don't mess up your own plan by pulling it out early. Yeah. Yeah. Emily was all about the farming. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. That was me. We're talking with Jill Salcihai, creator and co-host of the Stacking Benjamins podcast, as well as Emily Guy Birkin, a former educator and a Plutus award-winning freelance writer. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. We'll be back after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example. With a visceral, uncompromising, and dramatic feel, this car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, purposeful cockpit like driving position and award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. Once again, explore and build your Range Rover Sport at L-A-N-D-R-O-V-E-R-U-S-A.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Here on Earn and Invest, we often talk about fintech, but specifically, which apps do you use that makes your money easier? Well, I like to send people to Unify Money. Unify Money covers the whole gamut of our financial needs, including savings with high-yield savings accounts, spending, including credit cards, as well as investing. A core part of our long-term financial security and resilience is building an investment portfolio. The earlier we start, the better. 
And the less we lose in fees, the more money we will make in the long run. Unify Money helps you create a personalized investment portfolio effortlessly and gives you the option to trade actively across both traditional equities as well as stocks, funds, alternative assets, cryptocurrencies, gold, silver coins and bars, you name it. They even have fractional investments in precious metals. Everything you can think of, you can find it at Unify Money. Check them out. Go to earnandinvest.com slash unify. That's earnandinvest.com slash U-N-I-F-I. We are back with Joe Salcihai and Emily Guy Birkin, authors of Stack, your super serious guide to modern money management. Joe, I'm going to jump around a little here you guys talk about the difference between budgeting and tracking. Why is this important? Because when you track, and tracking is important, but tracking, all you get when you track is you get to see the trail of mess-ups that you made, right? <laughs> all the places where you biffed, which is great because I think you can learn from that. So tracking your expenses is a huge thing, but a lot of people track their money. And Emily points this out in the book that... Thomas Jefferson did a phenomenal job of tracking his money. And yet Thomas Jefferson, if you go back and look in history, was a financial disaster. It was absolutely owed everybody money, but he knew exactly how much he owed them. He knew just how screwed he was. Anybody never did the opposite side. Budgeting is on the forward end, which is okay. I'm going to give every job a dollar ahead of time, figure out where my money goes and then track on the back to see where we are. So it's almost like we're going on a trip. I will plan ahead what the what it's going to look like. We use the Oregon Trail as an example in the book, right? For people that played that old video game, the, the Oregon Trail was, if you followed the right way down the Oregon Trail, you had a better chance of getting there. Cheryl and I, my spouse, we were recently in Death Valley. Death Valley was uncharted during the during the 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 gold rush time. People didn't realize what a hellhole this was. And there was this dude in his 20s that said, "Hey, looking at all these people going around this one area, what if we just went straight through? Almost all those people died." So so these are people that didn't do a great job of planning forward following the marked trail of what other people have done. But people since then have been able to, to go, you know what, you don't, want to, you don't want to go that way. I think it's also the same, by the way, that we were talking about with your, with your in investments, planning out your investments, and then tracking how you did later. It's, it's very similar. It's, it's two different things. But it's even more, I think, with your taxes. There's, you know, a lot of people go, well, 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 tax planning, I've got somebody that's great at taxes, I hand them to them. Your taxes are going to be much better for the person you hand them to if you've done some good tax planning ahead of time, if you put money in the right tax shelters, if you look for opportunities, if you have a side hustle to save a few dollars, then when you hand the shoebox of stuff, or now it's a virtual shoebox of stuff to the tax preparer, you're giving them a controlled mess instead of just a mess. Emily, you know, Joe's an old guy, so it makes sense that he talks oh, about Oregon Trail. I'm sitting right here. But, but, <laughs> but the rest of us... We're using a lot of fintech nowadays. In fact, there's all sorts of sexy fintech that helps us budget and track. Is there a risk of losing our viewpoint of mistaking the tool for the actual goal? I mean, I feel like people are always playing with these apps, but do they lose track of what they're actually trying to accomplish? That can definitely happen where even I can remember way back in the early 2000s when Mint was still new, talking to someone saying like she was using Mint it made a lovely little chart showing her how she'd overspent. <laughs> She's like, it's so pretty. <laughs> Didn't help me not overspend. And so that's one of those things where like you, you can get these, these, this technology that can kind of convince you that you're doing the budgeting, that you're tracking effectively because it's doing it for you. The, the problem is I think often people want to hand off the responsibility for money over to someone else. And so you see that with financial planners. I mean, like Bernie Madoff was Bernie Madoff because people wanted to be like, I don't want to think about it. You do it. I mean, of course, that wasn't the only reason. But then you also have on a smaller scale, uh, this fintech where you're like, I don't want to think about it. You do it app. 
And the problem is you always need to be in the driver's seat. So your, your fintech app, your, your financial advisor, and your CPA, they hold the maps for you, but you're the one deciding the route. So if you are going into this thinking like, I'm good, I got an app. <laughs> you're like, well, no, how are you going to fit the app into your financial habits? How are you going to uh, uh, use the app to make sure you are making the best decisions possible with your money? And so that's one of the, the benefits of fintech is that it allows you to lean into what you're good at. So like back in the, the kerosene days where your only choice was to do paper and pencil, you know, get your, your paper statement once a month and go through it with a fine tooth comb, snooze fest for most people. And most people were not going to be good at that. Nowadays, your phone can give you a push notification like, hey, hey, the, by the way, dummy, you've got less than 100 bucks left in your account. Don't buy anything until your paycheck comes. And so that's fantastic. You do not have to be checking with a fine tooth comb everything that you do. You can use an app to give you the control to say like, oh, OK, yeah, no, no drinks after work today. I'm, I'm not going to get Starbucks. I'm getting paid on Friday. I, how am I going to make it until then? Instead of it being like on Friday. Friday, like, oh goodness, I overdrew my account by a thousand bucks. What do I do now? So those are those are the things that I think fintech can be great for. But remembering always that you are not passing the baton to anything else. You're the one running the race. You're the one who has to know what you're doing and use these tools to help you rather than give your responsibility over to the tools. Are we really calling the pen and paper days <laughs> kerosene days now? Because I call them 1993. I don't think I was, ever, I was 14 in 1993. I would like to <laughs> speak speak for yourself. So, Joe, let me ask you. We, you know, Emily's talking about you have to hold the reins yourself when it comes to budgeting and tracking and making these decisions. I'm not sure how it goes along in the Salcihai household, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if Cheryl held some of the reins too when it comes to budgeting. How do you decide or how do you work on getting your spouse on board in the budgeting game? I think, I think this is more important than the actual numbers, like what app you use, what, whether you use a, you know, a YNAB every dollar budget versus just a loose budget. I think that if you're planning with somebody else, communication is the best budgeting because in my house, it used to be doc that, that one of us knew exactly where every penny was going. And the other one was in a place that I refer to as fantasy land, right? And, and by the way, it wasn't just me. When I worked with, with people that budgeted with somebody else, that was most relationships. One person just assumed it was all going great until it's not. And by the way, the day that it's not, and in my house, I remember I had come home with a couple really kick butt video games on the same day that my wife decided to buy school clothes for our twins. I'm not going to talk about which one was more important, <laughs> but I will say, but I will say, I will say that I was not happy because even though I was the financial planner, I was so busy building my practice that Cheryl knew where every dollar was. And I just assumed that we had money. And part of the reason why I was crappy at money at the beginning of my career, which was during this time, was, was that we didn't have that communication. And so a fight broke out. We would fight like a lot of people did all the time about money. And then we decided that, the, that not only to make the fights not to continue, but if we were going to have shared goals and actually work to achieve them instead of exist together, having a weekly meeting was important. Now, I know people have monthly meetings or quarterly meetings and they make it like this big, huge meeting. I'm not talking about that type of meeting because if we did that every week, that would completely stink. This is, we meet for 15 to 20 minutes. It's always over either pancakes or wine, you know, depending on what day or, what or both time of day it is or both. Right. <laughs> so pancakes or wine, and, and we will seriously go to IHOP and have this meeting. And I don't know, it's, it's the international house of pancakes. <laughs> so all kinds of languages being spoken there, but, but we would go there to speak the language of money. And, and that language was the way we do it is we would just get on that app where we've been tracking our money. And we'd look through our expenses from the last week and we'd just talk about them. Oh, we spent money on this. Oh, we spent money on that. We'd take a look at how much was in savings and in checking. We wouldn't look at our, and we don't look at our investments. 
we look at uh, our investments just a couple times a year. So we have a longer meeting twice a year, one of those bigger meetings. We also look at our goals and whether we're reaching them twice a year financially. But, the, but on a week-to-week basis, how do we spend money last week? What bills are coming up in the next week? Any big expenses coming up around the corner? And guess what happened? Not only did we not fight about money, we ended up having better money conversations all week long. And as an example, I'm on the road this week. We're missing our money meeting this week because I'm on the road. We're not having it virtually. I'm, things are, are crazy. I know that, that the chance of us being frustrated about money is, is higher than because of that. I mean, it is, it is fantastic when we have just these ongoing casual money conversations. It doesn't have to be a big meeting of the mind. You don't have to gra- you know, drag your spouse there. Just have some fun and talk about how you spent money and what's going on next week. And I think it solves a lot of your budgeting problems. My husband and I are kind of different from that in the, you know, one person knows to the penny or to the dollar how much you have. And the other one feels like everything's just fine. Ours is one person knows the dollar how much we have. And the other one is always freaking out. My husband describes himself as a, uh, um, a chronic catastrophizer. But what's funny is that he even as a chronic catastrophizer and like there's, I think there's always red alerts going on in his head. Even with all that, he's, he's not really motivated to, to track his finances. <laughs> he's not really motivated to, to, to do budgeting and stuff like that. The way that I kind of enticed him, like I, you know, I bet the trail of candy to like, to coming to talk about money. To get him into the van. Yeah. Yeah. Like, come on, sweetie, it'll be fun. <laughs> Was we started it off by when we were uh, on road trips, we would do this thing like top 10 vacation destinations go. And so like, you know, he wants to see the 24 hour Le Mans car race in France, which is every June. And I'm not as much into the car stuff as he is, but France, I'm all for. <laughs> so, so having that. And so we went back and forth talking about like Machu Picchu, Hawaii, you know, like I'd like to go to Egypt. We should take the whole family to Israel. Like having these back and forth, back and forth that after that conversation, I was like, let's start a savings account. We put, you know, hundred bucks a month away to, to go to France. And so once we started doing that, then it was like, okay, what other fun stuff can we plan? This was many, many years ago. A few years after that, he was uh, staring down the barrel of 40. It was coming in another few years. And he's just like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not, not okay with this. And so we're talking about like, what would you like to do when you turn 40? And he wanted to buy himself a new motorcycle and go on a, a cross country ride with some of his best guy friends. So it's like, all right, let's start saving for it. And so we opened a, a, a new savings account and immediately started saving for that. And so that is, again, kind of getting back to the, the reason for this book is like, you know, it doesn't have to start with like, oh my God, the rent is due. How am I going to pay it? It can start with like, I have this dream trip that I want to go on. How are we going to make that work? And so like coming at it from a place of like, we're here to enjoy our lives. Let's do things together that are fun. And then, you know, having that, that kind of conversation made it a lot easier to, to get my husband on board with the regular, we only do monthly, but the regular meetings about what's going on with money. He's also used to me because I, I handle money stuff on a weekly basis. He's used to me calling in the middle of the workday, like, did you spend $279 at a fishing place? I don't recognize it. Do I need to? <laughs> and he'll be like, wait, did I? Oh, I did. Yes. Like you don't need to dispute that. So we, we do have regular conversations, which is, you know, me calling at random hours, asking if he'd spent $35 in a place that I didn't recognize. But there's, uh, but there's something important there, Emily, which is we used to always, you know, I came home that day with video games. We had to, for a while, we had to create budgets for the things that we both enjoyed. Because she would see my video game addiction and said, this is, this money's ridiculous. Like we've got these debts and these are ridiculous. I'm like, I can't get rid of every single piece of joy in my life or I'm never going to make the marathon finish. So I have to have something. And so, and I would say the same thing back before streaming, when I, when we had our money trouble, she would always come home with the grocery store from the grocery store with the DVD movie 
that she was going to watch one time and then it sat, you know, forever till we donated it to the library later. So, so she'd pay X amount of money for this movie. She's going to watch one more time when our neighbor probably bought it too. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and we, we'd be all judgy about each other's expenses. So we agreed that for us to have a, to have an allowance that each of us had that we weren't going to judge was something that was really important. And for us, that worked really well too. We have a similar situation. We're in a much different place now than we were. We've been married. It'll be 13 years later this month. Early in our marriage, I can remember I bought a pair of shoes for my cousin's wedding and it was about a $75 pair of shoes. And and I can remember him just going like, shoes that you're going to wear once? And I'm like, it's a wedding. <laughs> and whereas he'll come home with with craft beer where I'm like, you're just going to pee that out. <laughs> You're literally pissing money away. And so we do for a long time, we, we had separate fun money each for, for set aside for ourselves. So like, you know, I can buy all the books I want and, and shoes and things like that. He can get, and we are now at a place where just with our comfort, where we are uh, financially and with each other, we just go ahead and, and, and make those purchases and, and know that trust each other, that this is, that it, it works out. You know, and I don't want uh, single people to tune out during this because Emily and I are talking about what we do with our spouses, because I think the important truth here is not about what married couples do. It's that having an accountability partner that you work with, I still think doc, that's better. That's, that's way better. It is, it is way better than just having a pen and paper. I can talk myself into the dumbest stuff on earth, but if I have to tell my, and, and, and frankly, Cheryl and I can even do this with food. So I hired now, I mean, I'm in a different place now. So I finally hired a diet coach. And if I got to tell Jesse that I ate pizza, like, I just don't want to tell Jesse that I ate it. So, I mean, that's what Jesse's there for is to keep the pizza out of my mouth. I think you don't have to hire a coach like I did. You can agree with somebody that you're going to be the hard ass in their life and do it for each other. And I think that can be a powerful thing. We're talking with Emily Guy Birkin and Joe Saul Sihai. They are the authors of Stacked, your super serious guide to modern money management. Let's take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is Earn and Invest. If you've been listening to this show and trying to figure out how do I increase my top line, one way is through real estate. And when I want to learn more about real estate, one of my favorite places to go is the Real Estate and Financial Independence podcast with Coach Carson. This podcast is all about how to use real estate as an asset class to get ahead towards financial independence. There are two types of episodes, one in which the coach himself gives you all the tips and tricks on how to make money in real estate. The other is where he has guests, proof of concept, real life examples of people out there like you and I making real estate work towards their financial independence plan. It is a wonderful podcast. I hope you check it out. Go to coachcarson.com. Again, that's coachcarson.com. Take a listen. You won't regret it. Joe Salcihai is the creator and co-host of the Stacking Benjamins podcast, and Emily Guy Birkin is a former educator and a Plutus Award-winning freelance writer. Joe, before the break, we were talking about budgeting and we were talking about spousal buy-in. I want to pivot to some of the more counterintuitive parts of the book, because I think there's some information there which... When I first read it, I said, boy, I've never heard that idea before. And it really made me think about how we think about our finances. Let's start with the other side of the equation. We were talking about budgeting. Let's talk about the side of the equation of making money. You guys say that when it comes to side hustles, the sharing economy might not be your friend. Why do you say that? Yeah, we had a lot of this comes from my experience podcasting and talking to people far smarter than me. I like being the dumbest person in the room, and, and we try to book those people on our show. And uh, Dr. Juliet Shore came on and did the math around driving for Uber, driving for, for Lyft, and more and more, this isn't the sharing economy because there's not a lot of sharing going on. 
you're doing the heavy lifting and the corporate overlords that run these companies are taking the vast majority of that cash. Now, I had some listeners push back on me when we ran that interview and said, no, I've been able to make good money driving for Uber. My point still in, in the book, and I think Emily agrees, is that if, if it's a short-term thing, maybe go ahead and drive for somebody else. Maybe pay off those credit cards and do that. If it's a long-term thing, even, if, even though you're not going to make a lot of money in the beginning, it's going to be much more self-sustaining and I think much more your ability to keep more of your money, let's just put it that way, happens when you create a side gig. And I used to be completely against side gigs, by the way. I thought, why the hell would you go do something else when you've got this job? And studies show, by the way, the easiest way to make more money is to ask your boss for a raise. That is the easiest way to make more money. And, and we talk about how to do this in the book. Do not go there emotionally like, like hey, Emily, I just need more cash. <laughs> like, don't, don't, don't do that. Babysitter bills are horrible, Emily. I just need more. <laughs> you, you've got to talk about what you're bringing to the table. And often, by the way, when you ask for a raise, I got to know, once again, if Emily's my boss, I have to know that Emily probably doesn't have the final word. So I have to turn Emily into an advocate who's working on my behalf if I ask for a raise. But back to side hustles, owning your own company is probably going to be more fulfilling. It's going to be hard work, but you own it. It's yours. You keep the profits. You keep what you do instead of making a lot of money for somebody else. And in sometimes in a lot of markets, as Juliet Shore said, you're actually, when you look at depreciation on your automobile, the cost affiliated with, with driving in general, a lot of people not making any money doing this. You kind of mentioned this, but the thing that I think a lot of people need to focus on when it comes to creating a side hustle or side gig is sustainability. So, you know, you see hustle culture and it's like, you know, I'll sleep when I'm dead and, you know, like I'm working 20 hours a day and it's like, why? <laughs> so, you know, obviously some people are in a position where that's, that's the only choice they have. It's, it's that or drown. But if you're not in that position, why are you going to commit to something that is not sustainable? Why are you going to commit to something that is not enjoyable? You know, I, I absolutely love my job. I really, I, um, being a writer is a, a lifelong dream come true. And I, I want you to also know there are days when I'm tearing my hair out because that's what jobs are. <laughs> my, as my dad used to say, that's why I call, that's called work. If we're, pl- if we're fun, then called play, but I am able to power through those hair tearing days because I love what I do. And you can kind of say like what I do as a freelancer is I've got a whole bunch of different side hustles because I don't have one main nine to five that's, you know, I, I, I go to, I don't have a single source of income. And that's something that I think a lot of people think, you know, like, okay, I'm just going to work myself to the bone by driving for DoorDash or Uber or Lyft on top of my nine to five, on top of the other thing that I do. And, you know, if that can get you out of a small hole, if that's something, if you're, you're trying to save up for a specific goal, I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with doing that. I think that that can be a, a really beneficial way to do something. The problem is that if you want something that is going to be a long-term source of extra income, you're going to need something that's sustainable and you're going to need to have patience. And so, and a lot of times the, the simplest way is also the hardest. So like what Joe was talking about with getting a raise, you know, like the simplest way to get more money in your, in your pockets is to get a raise. And that's going to require some hard work because you're going to need to like do some research and figure out like, okay, what is it that my employer needs more of? What can I prove that I've already done? How can I make my boss an advocate for me with her bosses? And a lot of people are like, I don't want to do that. I'll just drive for Uber. And, and it's understandable as someone who loves to procrastinate, I get that, (laughs) that, but getting past that hurdle, that recognition of like, this is actually the simplest and the most sustainable. And it requires some work on the front end that, you know, wow, that doesn't sound like fun, but you know what? It's going to get me where I need to be a lot faster. Similar with, if I want to build a side gig, build a side business, it's going to require some work that may not sound fun, that may not have, have money putting going in your pocket immediately, but that is necess- is probably going to be the simplest way and the most sustainable way to, to get extra income coming in. 
And I used to think that the side business was a waste of time and you should just ask for the raise. And, and my brain changed there after I talked to another uh, person I think is brilliant, a gentleman named Austin Cleon, who said that that side gig can really inform your primary career. So he was talking about how the fact that he plays guitar and he'll have some of his best thoughts about his business of writing when he's playing guitar, doing something that is so different and letting your brain go to that other space. So having a side gig, having this different thing going on in your life can, can really add to, add to your life. Joe, let's talk about what I think is another counterintuitive idea expressed in the book. I've never heard this term before. Strategic under-diversifying. What is strategic <laughs> under-diversifying and why should we not ignore it? Well, so just to set this up, because I think that there are spots you need to go through first. The book is divided into four sections, stacking your first Benjamin, which I think you need to do first, right? You need to figure out how to actually get a, get a foundation under you. Then stacking Benjamins, how to just build this stacking Benjamins machine, which includes part of my, one of my favorite chapter in the book, which is what to expect when you're investing, which is just hilarious and informative. But then we move into protecting your stack. And then this is at the end of the book. So I just want to be clear before I launch into this. It's an advanced technique. That this is an advanced technique. And this and how to hire a financial advisor that won't, won't screw you over, that type of stuff is all at the bottom. But under diversification is, is, is important if you want to get rich because of the fact that that's, that's how it works. I mean, you look at Dave Ramsey as an example, as the bajillion pound gorilla in our space. Dave Ramsey didn't get wealthy by diversifying the way he tells people to do it on the radio, by buying a bunch of mutual funds, each one that has, you know, maybe two, 300 different positions, or take the JL Collins approach of buying every stock, right? Of buying all, let's just buy all the stock, or they pronounce stocks now. I don't know. The, uh, but only buy if they're them going all. to the moon. There's That's only they're going to the moon. To the moon. That's yes. right. I just had to clarify there. So buying all of them isn't going to get, isn't going to get you rich because. What that does is it, is it makes it easier for you not to be poor. So there are two different ways to manage your money. There's a way that's a responsible way where I'm going to go make money some other way and I'm going to put it in this thing and it's going to reliably grow over time based on the economy. That's what diversification is for. If I'm going to get wealthy, it's never going to happen that way. What I have to do is buy fewer names. So instead of 300 names, maybe I buy five. And now with the same amount of money, 300 versus five, everybody can see this thing called your standard deviation is going to go through the roof. And standard deviation just says this, there's a much higher probability I'm either going to get really wealthy or, or I'm going to get really broke in a hurry. But it's going to happen much, much faster with five than it will with 300. So the key concept to know if you're trying to get wealthy on your money is to under diversify. And it comes with, to my point that I just mentioned, it comes with a ton of risk. It comes with a lot of risk. But when people would, when people ask a financial planner, how do I get rich? And the financial planner tells you to put your money in the S&P 500, that's not a way to get rich. The way to get rich is to build a business like Dave Ramsey did, to finish my Dave Ramsey analogy. Dave Ramsey got wealthy because he built how many companies? One. One company. That company was either going to do really well or maybe just hang on, or was going to go bankrupt, right? One of the three things. And he had one that did go bankrupt, or he, got, he, he ran into trouble buying real estate. So he went bankrupt once, under-diversifying. So under-diversifying is, is clearly the way to wealth, but it's also the way to huge destruction. Emily, let's pull this into what's happening today in the world. Has the pandemic changed any of this advice? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know that the, the pandemic has changed any advice. The pandemic has changed how we give advice and it changed how people receive it because good money management is the same in, in good times and bad. It's the same. Like the, the, one of the reasons, as you mentioned early on is like, there's so many books out there, you know, you pick two or three of the good ones and you're, you're set. And there's a reason for that because while there are changes to things like tax law, there are changes to like SEC and 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 things like that, which we do need to, as as financial writers, we do need to help people through. 
the basics of money management are going to stay the same. The thing is, when we have a huge event like the pandemic, people react differently to the same advice. And so what is necessary is, is to like be cognizant of the fact that people are gun shy. Just in the same way, if you looked at the, the advice written in 2009 compared to the advice written in 2007, there was a, a slightly different tone. It went from a, a tone of you know, like, everything's great. Here's what you do to like, everything will be okay. Here's what you do. So that's where I think one of the things that I'm hoping is, is going to make stacked evergreen is that because we're coming at it from a playful point of view, that playful point of view is a, a, uh, an important balm right now for people who are overwhelmed and, and concerned and worried about their money and worried about the future. But I think that the playful point of view will also be welcome and uh, a joy to read when things are going well and you just want to make sure that you're on the right track with your money. So that's the main difference that I see in, you know, in the wake of such a, a big event. And just for an example, we got our book deal in June of 2020. And at the time that we we got the book deal, we had put the proposal together. We'd been working on it for over a year, gotten some great advice from our agents. When we we spoke to the publisher, they're like, "Do we need to talk about the pandemic?" And we decided, "Yeah, let's let's add another another chapter about uh, rebuilding after after a, a terrible event." And so that was in May or June, and things were still very shaky financially. By the time we got to where we would be writing that chapter, when we, it was like December, November, December of, of 2020, it was like, well, actually, that doesn't have a place here anymore. Like the, that, that impulse we had to kind of like, here's what you need to know about rebuilding doesn't really fit and doesn't really make sense as an entire chapter by itself. It's just some, some language we can put in throughout about, um, you know, how someone can be flexible and react well to bad events. And so that's, that's something that I think was a really important lesson for us as, as educators is remembering, you know, like even we who've been through this before had a, bigger reaction to something as did our publishers who have, you know, they've published many financial books saying like, okay, we need to re react to this. And then realizing just a few months on, no, we really don't. We, we really don't need to have a response to this in this book. Yeah. I think it made the book more timeless because the fact that we went through and made sure that this is a book that's good now in a time of rebuilding versus when we started, but you know, before the pandemic and knew nothing about it, but, but also I'm with Emily just by the, t I just remember that time where we're like, you know what? We're all tired of it. Like everybody, nobody wants to read a chapter on rebuilding. Let's just not be so in your face about it, but let's talk about, Hey, how do you build that solid foundation? Cause a lot of people need a very solid foundation right now. It's a great point because I think when we think of financial information and knowledge, it's not that we change what we do because there's an emergency. In fact, it's that our knowledge and our learning in the first place help prepare us for all those unexpected changes. There truly are probably many good personal finance books, but if you want to know what to do in your own life, you probably only need to read a few of them I was excited to read Stacked, your super serious guide to modern money management. I think you guys handled the topics we talked about today, but many, many more. There's a chapter on taxation and inflation, and you talk about real estate. A lot of things we didn't discuss today. This is just a small sprinkling of what you covered in the book with both grace and comedy. I wanted to thank you for coming on to the show to talk about it. Emily, why don't you tell us what's up next in your life and where can we find you if we want to know more? In addition to having Stacked coming out this year, I also had the revised and updated Five Years Before You Retire was released in May of 2021. And so I would uh, invite everyone to take a look at that if you are near retirement. You can also find me at my website, emilyguyberkin.com. I blog there and then you can find information about all of my books and anything else that I'm up, up to these days. And then I'm always on Twitter too much. As I said, I like to procrastinate. So 
feel free to say hey to me there at Emily Guy Birkin. I would love to connect with you. And Joe, we can order stacked today, correct? You can. It's a pre-order and pre-orders. The book comes out December 28th. It is a fantastic holiday time gift for either people just starting out or a reminder of how to put it together yourself. The, the, the pre, pre-orders are so huge for any author because if you're going to, if you're going to make a list and I want to back up a little bit before I get into this, which is that I get really excited just about financial literacy. I get, I get excited about your show doc. I get excited about what Emily's doing outside of this project. I get excited about what we do because I think there's so many people that need this kind of stuff. So any book, whether it's this one or a different project, if you can pre-order it, let me tell you what it does. It, it, allows that project to possibly make the Amazon list or make the wall street journal list, which would be fantastic. Or God forbid, make the, make the big, big cat, the New York times list. So pre-orders are super important to those. So if you find a project you like, whether it's this one or another one, always try to support not just the author, but support financial literacy by pre-ordering it. Even if you're going to give it to a friend, pre-order it and give it away. And Joe, what's the best way to reach you if people want to interact more? Yeah, guess what? The cool thing is we're going to be supporting the book ourselves by going to 40 cities around the country. You know, it depends on what this Delta variant does, but but assuming that we're kind of cleaning up from that, fingers crossed, uh, I'll be hitting the road on January 4th. And the best way to know when we're going to be in one of those 40 cities. And by the way, hopefully Doc's going to be in a few of those with us. I know Emily's going to be in a bunch of those. There'll be a cardboard cut out of me when I cannot be there. (laughs) Everywhere. You weren't supposed to say that. And I'm thinking though, if the Delta variant is what it is, we could just send our cardboard cutouts around the city. We'll have two two cardboard cutouts. Two cardboard cutouts. Yeah. Safer for everybody. But our, our newsletter is a great way, Doc, to, to get that. You also get money lessons from us and, and a guide to our Stacky Benjamin show. But it's stackybenjamins.com forward slash stacked. And you'll know the tour and which cities Doc's going to be in with us and where Emily and I will be. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Emily Guy Birkin and Joe Salcihai. That's a wrap. Bam. Thank you. Awesome. By, by the way, Joe, I wanted to mention to you, my sister, she she um, uh, gave me a shout out on her podcast and she hyphenates. She's Tracy Guy Decker with a hyphen. Yeah. And so she's like, oh, you should look up my my sister, Emily Guy Birkin, no hyphen. And I was like, oh my God, we need to be like, Joe Salci, hi, hyphen, Emily Guy Birkin, no hyphen. I'm feeling like I'm missing a name. <laughs> I know you are. I feel like I'm, you know. You ever, all the cool kids have three names. <laughs> Apparently, is there anything you guys felt like we needed to touch on that we didn't? Is there any any topic that you really want in there? No, we didn't have any dick jokes. <laughs> yeah, that's good, Joe. That's good. In fact, we didn't. That, that often is my is my strategic plan for every show. First, to not have a dick joke. No dick yes. jokes. Yeah, we didn't talk about how Emily Emily's really a, a member of the of the. Of the 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 mafia, the, the tattoo. I I had oh, a tattoo yes. question and it actually got cut just because we were we were talking about other stuff. So, but it yes. was it was it was part of my questions. But I didn't, right. I didn't get to it. Why did I why 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 did I co-author this with Emily? Because otherwise she would have capped me. <laughs> she did that to her own grandmother. That's right. <laughs> the, the tear, for anyone listening to the after show right now, that's the teardrop tattoo she has. If you buy the book, you will actually find out why Emily has a teardrop tattoo. What in the world made her get it and how it actually means that she whacked her own grandmother. Cheryl's like, why didn't you write this yourself? And I'm like, I don't think you understand. Emily really wants to write it. <laughs> Emily said I should write it with her. <laughs> so I, when I was in college, I, don't, I, I was known because I was very naive and I would say things that were accidentally perverted. And so I was the accidental pervert. Right. Um, 
Right. As opposed no. to Joe, who's just the pervert right. on purpose. Yes. Yes. Really, really and truly. And so for a while, my my uh, um, email signature was accidental pervert. And I would change it whenever I was emailing like professors or something. And I forgot when I emailed mm. my, uh, my, my aunt's. And so like I was emailing her about um, I think I was going going to her house for Rosh Hashanah and she wrote back, dear accidental. <laughs> so I am I am also the uh, the accidental gang member. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you fall into the funniest things. Emily. I really do. <laughs> that was we would we would I would I would uh, I would say to Emily as we're starting to edit, Emily was like, let's take that out. Like she was advocating, (laughs) let's take everything out. And so we jump on one of these zoom calls and Emily's changed her name to like that stone cold bitch. (laughs) (laughs) It was so so great. Oh my God. We laughed our heads off. I'm like, better better with Emily than your editor. That's right. (laughs) Our editor was amazing, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. Jeez. Nina was a ninja. Yeah. Yeah. She's yeah. done a lot of the good personal finance books out there, right? Because she she has. She's done a few great. really top tier ones. Yeah. She did. Well, in our community, she did Grant's book and she right, did Millennial uh, Revolution, the right? Shens. Yeah. 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 She did their book, too. Yeah. She is fantastic. Yeah. So if, if this isn't a New York Times bestseller, it's all your guys' fault. It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.